At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from sunny Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. And we have another great show for you. Please be seated. Court is in session. And um, it is somewhat of an inauspicious day. Um, I, I think I know why the Mayan calendar ended when it did. Because yeah. if you look at today in history, it is a quite a bleak day. Um, beginning with the very first assassination attempt made against the U.S. president, Andrew Jackson. We have Hitler rising to power. On this day, we have the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi, um, who preached nonviolence. We have Martin Luther King, who followed Mahat- Mahatma Gandhi's uh, preachings, having his house bombed after the Birmingham um, bus boycott. And then we have um, civil rights leaders in, um, in Northern Ireland and um, Ulster, who um, followed Martin Luther King's preachings and um, were um, unarmed, were, were shot by um, British um, police. So, um, as well as the Tet Offensive, um, plane crashes, um, boat sinkings, it is not um, a good day to launch something major. But um, we will proceed bravely forward on um, the anniversary of Bloody Sunday. And um, But we have an interesting show for you. And just by way of background, uh, before I, I started my legal practice, I actually studied and worked a little bit in the field of urban planning. And the time frame was the 1980s. And there were a lot of places in the northeast, um, cities that were ravaged by the, you know, um, the recession and by foreign, you know, the effects of um, jobs going both overseas and in the New England, a lot of them were going to the south. And so as they were trying to reinvent themselves, and some of them found ways to do it. You know, some, some, we start the early days of the, um, 
the Silicon um, Valley um, happened on the East Coast, what was called um, Route 128. Um, but then you also saw cities reinvent themselves by creating entertainment areas like Baltimore did with Inner Harbor. So all that was going on and um, before I started law school. And so it's interesting today we're going to be dealing with an issue similar to that as we're seeing cities now reinventing themselves with the, um, the whole prospect of becoming a gigabyte city. And we're going to be talking about that in a few minutes. And in the second half hour, though, we're talking about a very topical issue. And the issue of what happens when you have legitimate software that can be used for illegitimate purposes. And we're seeing that happen now in the, as a number of repressive regimes are using uh, technology from Silicon Valley and elsewhere to censor the Internet and to use it to foster um, and, and, and implement their repression. And so there's a study that just come out um, from the University of Toronto, and we have someone here to talk about that, um, the extent to which um, Silicon Valley is involved in some of the web censorship and repression that's going on. So um, that will be in the second half hour. But without further ado, let me introduce my first guest. And um, he is definitely someone who's been at the heart of this whole gigabit um, movement, and um, he actually is the founder of the Gigabit um, City um, Summit. His name is David Sandell, and um, with Sandell and Associates, um, he's calling in live from St. Louis. Um, we're actually, surprisingly, it's colder than Toronto. How are you today, David? I'm very good, Bennett. Thank you for welcoming welcoming me to the show today. Um, it's really, I mean, you have quite an impressive background in the work that you've you. done in the, in the area of technology and um, also just in general business development and, and being a, a major player, I guess, in the whole um, greater St. Louis economy. Um, and you're quite an asset to have. And how was it that you got into the Gigabit um, City Summit? You faded out there for a second. Oh, I'm sorry. How was it that you got into the Gigabit City Summit? Well, let me uh, tell you a little bit about my background here. Sure. Um, uh, my company, we are Gigabit Urban Planners. We're the first company of its type in the United States. It's a different form of urban planning. And what we do is we work with cities, community organizations, and service providers to develop plans for the economic development of their Gigabit community. What we do, in essence, is we help shape a better Gigabit world. We do we work with the service provider to make sure that the economic development bubble that results from a gigabit infrastructure is at least double what it would be if it was just by the service provider working by themselves. And I also recently have been serving as an advisor to the Google Fiber Mayor's Bi-State Innovation Team, helped develop the Kansas City Fiber Playbook, and work closely with the Mid-America Regional Council. So you want to ask yourself, how did I come to do this? Uh, my background is a little bit interesting in this regard. Uh, I used to work with Cisco during the Internet bubble. I was the lead designer for the exchange points called May East and West. I became very fascinated with the economics and politics of significant infrastructure at that time. When I came back to St. Louis in 2001, I was appointed to be the president of a not-for-profit organization whose purpose was to create a plan for the economic development of the entire St. Louis Metropolitan Internet as an appointment through a quasi-governmental organization. And keep in mind, this is with 120 municipalities in over two states. 
So between those two experiences, I gained a tremendous amount of experience in public sector, how to lead, manage, and fund a gigabit economy ahead of the gigabit movement now and ahead of the smart cities movement that you see going on around the world. And um, so as it, it came about, um, and you're, you're and actually, you know, oddly enough, it happened right in your backyard with, with Kansas City. Um, you, where do you see it going next? Boy, this is a really good question. I think we're at the uh, knee bend of an uptick in the gigabit economy here. Um, what's really been going on over the last two years is um, the market, the general market in the United States is becoming more and more aware of Kansas City Google Fiber and the implications of it. And um, there's news and press releases of this that have been going out daily. And initially, the people who responded to this were young people and innovative and creative people who immediately understood the value. But as these messages kept going out into the market, um, persons who are uh, further in years in generation started to understand this message more and more. For example, recently I'd been talking to a retired persons, 70 and 80 years old, who are also beginning to understand the value of this and wanted to know when it was going to become coming to their communities. So we've also seen um, during the last two years also the emergence of the GIGU initiative, which is a university-based initiative to build essentially test beds for the development of applications that will go over these gigabit networks. And there have been announcements already in Chicago, Seattle, and most recently in North Carolina. So given that the FCC two weeks ago announced this uh, Gigabit City Challenge to look for the development or help move along the development of 50 more gigabit communities is very, very exciting. So what we've seen in the last two years is Kansas City beaconing to the market. Everyone's beginning to understand that message and the economic development upside of it. You see the application space being championed by GigU and uh, announcements in Chicago, Seattle, and North Carolina. And uh, the FCC announcement, I think, is particularly exciting because I think what's going to happen is it's going to uh, attract small communities. It's going to attract Main Street America to make investments in what I would call gigabit Main Streets, which are very small communities, uh, maybe one mile long, where gigabit infrastructure is installed in a very affordable fashion and an ecosystem built to go with that. So um, I, I see this is just the beginning of this, and uh, it's a very exciting time right now for us in the United States. I mean, it's interesting you make that second point about small communities because it seems that it's often the rural communities who are left behind in broadband development. And uh, what is uh, why is has that happened, do you think, And um, what 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 is the best thing that broadband, uh, ultra broadband, as it's sometimes called, um, can do for a rural community? Yeah, you know, it's a very good question. I think I would add rural community and small town and main street together. Um, as this has all happened, you know, the the Google image is so big. Most people think we can't do this. You know, it's so big, and then. Other communities look at GigU and they say, well, that's also fairly big, too. We can't do that. 
But I think what's coming through this whole transformation process that's happening to the United States right now is the, you know, as communities and individuals are becoming empowered, rural communities realize, small cities realize, and main streets are now realizing that they can do the same thing too. And the real economic development upside of what they see in this is basically three things. Number one, it's going to increase the value of real estate. And we've seen this happening in uh, uh, Kansas City. We see it happening in St. Louis. We also see it in some gig U environments where individuals are being attracted to move to certain parts of town to be around gigabit connectivity. So the first one, real estate value will increase. Two, when these people move to these parts of community, new jobs will be created because new companies will be created. So we have high-value job creation. And then three, when we put these two densities together in the same part of town, we then have new private sector and public sector opportunity in a, in a more stable uh, t- a revenue base for the public sector. So all of these things together create economic recovery around gigabit infrastructure. So this is an exciting time that smaller communities can invest $3 million or less and can uh, look forward to doubling the economic development impact of that community within three to five years. Now, um, when the the announcement was made by um, FCC Chairman Janikowski um, for a gigabit city in each state, you know, 50 states. I mean, at the time he said it, I mean, there are only about 14 gigabit cities or areas even. There aren't, there aren't even 14 whole cities in the U.S. How, how, how daring is that, do you think? Or, is it that, or are we actually moving there already? I think we're in the, uh, the, the knee bend of the curve right now. We're actually moving there. I think um, the main thing that has to be addressed here is that the understanding of how to actually go about doing this, how to actually um, align local organizations and resources to motivate them to do this is actually understood by small groups of people. So the key to doing this, and this was brought up in the FCC announcement, is we have to lead with education. We have to lead and so that all the different stakeholder groups, community groups, can understand each other. This has been a problem. For example, university initiatives have difficulty understanding city managers and economic development executives. Conversely, economic development executives and city managers have difficulty understanding universities. And both of these parties have trouble understanding vendors and the vendors want to uh, sell network infrastructure in 90-day revenue cycles. So I think getting the, all these parties educated and understanding the right approach and value proposition is going to move us forward much more rapidly than we expect. And um, in terms of, you, you mentioned the different segments, and it, there have been several different approaches towards developing a gigabit city. You know, first we saw what happened with Chattanooga that basically you had a, a, a city utility that was going to create a smart grid and realize, hey, while, while I'm doing it, why not why don't I create uh, a gigabit city too since I want to be laying down the cable? Um, and then you have now the, like the gig U what's happening 
and which I, I see as having great potential. When I saw that the mm-hmm. University Triangle in North Carolina mm-hmm. um, was 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 going to move forward, um, and I just thought the potential for that is just dramatic. And and there already is so much talent there to begin with that it just creates a, further mm-hmm. accentuates it as a as a regional hub for uh, technology and economic development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very very good point. I think what's going to happen here is. As small communities and main streets get on board, they're going to realize that they can spend one, two, three million dollars and they can double the economic development impact into that main street area within three to five years. When you look at an economic development impact statement of a gigabit community and what it predicts over three and five years, you're talking about tens and maybe hundreds of millions of dollars of total revenue flowing into that economy. And if you contrast that with a two or three million dollar capital investment it then becomes very clear that this two or three million dollars is nothing compared to the economic development upside um, that could produce you know 10 50 70 million dollars worth of economic development impact the other thing is is that as this education process goes on and community leaders and real estate developers understand what i just described it'll become very easy to um, absorb the cost of the $3 million, either with direct capital or other uh, beneficial ways of doing it. So I, I, even though we have the big Google flagship in Kansas City and the GigU initiatives, I'm predicting that the small communities and the Main Street model is going to drive the market because there's capital available in every local market that can do 2 or $3 million. And it, it, it's amazing that... Um there's still so much skepticism about investment in broadband. And, um, for example, I know uh, um, half of the Chattanooga money came from um, stimulus money. And a number of the, um, the some of the funding at the GIGU level has also come from stimulus grants. And it just seems that, that people say, well, that's wasteful spending and you know, it doesn't create jobs. But it, it seems like the evidence is there that it does. Yeah, the, it's it's not evidence. It's fact. Um, High-value jobs are created, and uh, as individuals move into these neighborhoods, and real estate real estate valuations go up immediately. Hello. Individuals in the local economy see the shift take place. So I think in reality, this is one of the best uses of capital expenditure that we could possibly imagine when you can consider the other traditional ways that economic development agencies have been using funds for legacy and infrastructure. This is time for the new infrastructure for the new economy and focusing some investment in that area. We'll definitely see real estate value increase, high value job creation, and all types of private and public sector opportunity come about. And that's something that we've always done. I mean, we we uh, did a private-public partnership to create the Transcontinental Railroad. You know, it's just a complete manifest destiny to the extent if you buy that. But um, and and it seems like all great innovations has always been you know hand in hand. And and it just doesn't. I don't understand the the objections to doing it now. But what's amazing is that you're is where it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I I, just, I get Chattanooga to an extent. It was a very educated city because of its proximity to TVA, and there's a lot of reasons why that made sense. But you know, it's not the city that you would expect to leapfrog to the front of this whole gigabit race, and uh, it seems to be having a remarkable payoff as a result. Yeah, it is, and it's really fascinating. Many people don't know it, um, 
you know, uh, Chattanooga, Chattanooga and Kansas City are both great examples. But in the state of Missouri right now, in the center of the United States, we have significant gigabit initiatives in Kansas City, St. Louis, Columbia, and Springfield. That's the all the major living areas of an entire state, and it's in the center of the heartland. If that doesn't say, make a message about the future of infrastructure development, I don't know what does. But let me tell you one other brief story. The St. Louis Initiative is really exciting. It's called the Loop Media Hub. And in our uh, Main Street area over here, through the most creative part of town, we had won an award for a $45 million trolley line to be installed. So I approached the trolley planning committee and said, if you're going to tear up all the streets, why don't we put in the fiber duct system at the same time? And they agreed to do that. So what happened was we saved 90% of the capital cost of the backbone infrastructure as the trolley is installed. And it's now we have a community that's in the strongest part of the town with green transportation, gigabit connectivity, a really strong leadership team. And this model, this Main Street model is going to be phenomenally powerful. And I, I see that it's going to replicate itself over the United States with or without the trolley system. But it strikes all the right chords, and we're, we're tentatively calling it the first boutique gigabit community. <laughs> <laughs> Gigaboutique, um, I guess, yeah. if they had to merge. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk to David a little bit more about um, what is also being called the Silicon Prairie. After these messages, you're listening to Cyberlawn Business Report. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Aim clear. This is how you sell with social. Have you tried to do CPA conversions using social PPC and failed? <laughs> You're not alone. These days, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube require true specialists to dominate. <laughs> Aim clear. The agency brings definitive psychographic targeting, bleeding edge creative, and content amplification to the social advertising table. Aim clear. This is how you sell with social. Aim clear. This is how you sell with social. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is authoritylabs.com. Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. Whether you're running sites with just a few or millions of keywords, what you need is AuthorityLabs.com. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. 
And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly. You're listening to Cyberlawn Business Report. And we are talking about the gigabit challenge that um, FCC Chairman Janikowski has laid down. Now, um, if you have a map out of the United States, um, you can write the word Silicon in practically every state in the Union, but there's different um, suffixes. And so um, north to me is Silicon Valley and based in San Jose. I'm broadcasting from Santa Monica and where the Santa Monica, Venice, L.A. area is being known as Silicon Beach. And um, we have David talking from St. Louis, which is now be- and with uh, the advent of the, the gigabit um, and Google investment in Kansas City is now being known as Silicon Prairie. And uh, I wonder what other suffixes we'll come up with. Um, I guess Vegas would be a silicon sin. But um, <laughs> well how, how is um, Silicon Prairie? Is that taking root? or? Um, yes, I, th- I think Silicon Prairie is a, re- is in, is a fate complete almost. Um, I mentioned how this, uh, you know, the Google initiative is moving in Kansas City and the marketing beacon going on. It's drawing a lot of attraction from all the other communities in the Midwest, and it's attracting entrepreneurs to move in that direction or to develop collaborative relationships. I see this strengthening over the next two or three years with the uh, local cities might even form collaborative agreements between uh, Kansas City Google Fiber and other communities in the Midwest to um, to strengthen that Silicon Prairie effect. I'd also like to spend a couple, just a minute or two, talking about the Gigabit City Summit. Please. Um, the Gigabit City Summit is a very important venue in, develop in development in this space. I was the founder of the Gigabit City Summit. It was also co-founded with a company in Kansas City called Curio Lab and another company called BrainZooming Partners. And what we wanted to do is use the Cisco Telepresence platform and WebEx to provide a neutral third-party venue by which smart cities and gigabit city leaders around the world could uh, discuss all the issues related to leading, planning, and funding smarter gigabit city initiatives. Um, This same type of concept, Gigabit City Summit, could be applied to the entire Silicon Prairie where all these uh, different organizations and city organizations start to um, collaborate with one another. I'd also like to get back to the um, Gigabit City Challenge with the FCC for a moment before we wrap up here. Sure. Two of the biggest things that have come out of Kansas City is the understanding that successful Gigabit communities are really about 90% sociology and 10% infrastructure. It's really not just about the network provider anymore. It's about thoughtfully aligning organizations and resources to make things happen. And it's really about the people that drives this gigabit economy. And when they're working together in a uh, sustainable, collaborative way, we have something called high-performance community collaboration that takes place. And that's what's really what drives the economic development upside of gigabit communities. The other thing we've learned is that less is more. And, you know, Google Fiber is certainly more, but the way the communities are going to be able to proceed is with these small small neighborhoods and main street solutions that are in the 2 and $3 million range. So those will be um, definitely will be incentivized 
it's a very exciting development. See, these small neighborhoods are all going to develop over the next three and five years, which I think will drive the overall broader national broadband economy and create significant change. I have to I have to ask you, um, you know, being from St. Louis, is there any um, rivalry or a sense of being snubbed um, in that you know so so often St. Louis is overshadowed its uh, its western neighbor? Um, how how has that gone down in uh, the show me um, in St. Louis, Bennett? That's an excellent question. You know, I think we we're. If we look back right now, we can see the legacy economy and the way we used to work and interact with each other. And we were in silos and we were competitive with each other and we would work at cross purposes. And I think in some way you could say that was the way between St. Louis and Kansas City. So now we're heading into a new economy based upon high-performance community collaboration. And there's a wide variety of dialogues and exchanges that are taking place now between St. Louis and Kansas City of what that future might look like and how these two cities might collaborate with each other and create greater economic development upside. So I think another thing we'll see coming out of this gigabit city challenge is cities will form more uh, alliances and partnerships to um, make more innovative things happen faster. So this is this is a really good development for us as a country because we'll be getting out of our zones, we'll get, be getting out of our box, and we'll be doing more greater stuff by collaboration. Now, um, where, where are you from originally, David? I was born in Austin, Texas, and wow. later lived in Boston. My dad was a postdoc at MIT, and then we came out here to St. Louis. So you've hit all the, all the tech yes. cities, it seems. <laughs> um, so it, we only have a few minutes um, left, but you know, where, where can people find out more information about um, you know, your company and also about the Gigabit City um, Summit? Well, the Gigabit Sun, excuse me, the Gigabit City Summit is a uh, URL name by itself, gigabitcitysummit.com. My company, we are Gigabit Urban Planners. We help shape better gigabit communities. That's sandalassociates.com. And you can also take a look at the FCC website for the Gigabit City Challenge. And Kansas City has a wide variety of um, uh, websites up. A good place to start is the KC Next or at KC Digital Drive. And uh, what is the next event for the, um, the summit? Well, we have. We just had a big one recently. I, I saw that. Last, uh, last in 2012, you had a big um, kind of a conclave, it seemed. And I was just wondering, what, what's your next? Uh, uh... We've actually had four sessions so far. One, the first was an inaugural session. The second was a leadership and community challenges session. The third was open government, big data, and innovation. And the fourth one was about the need for advanced degrees and certificate programs for gigabit city leadership which has actually turned into a uh, small global initiative now in which we have various working groups developing one day, one week, and master's programs in Gigabit City education. The next um, one that we're planning right now is currently called Working in the Cloud, Living in the City, and it's being developed with some international partners, and there will be details about it in the near future. Well, I mean, it's you know, we talk about making the cities of the future. I mean, 
you're also making the curriculum to make the cities of the future. And it, it's, it's got to be very exciting for you. And uh, I just want to thank you for coming on board today and, and educating on this. I, I just think it's a very exciting development. And um, we're, I'm a very strong proponent of making this uh, effort. And uh, so to please um, stay in touch. We want to hear about your progress as we go along. And everyone, um, I want to thank David and um, check out his website and um, check out, sign up um, for um, his website and see what other developments are happening. And um, he's definitely going to be someone to watch as the, this whole gigabit economy takes off. So, David, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thanks again, Bennett. And 2013 will be great as we all work together and shape a better gigabit world. Thank you. Um, we're going to take a short break. and But when we come back... Um, we're going to talk about, um, we have someone from the University of Toronto, and um, where I almost studied, actually. And, <laughs> and we're going to talk about Silicon Valley's role in, um, in, in international repression and internet censorship. And um, you'd be surprised to find that um, there are a number of companies and respectable companies that make technology that has legitimate purposes but that's also falling into the hands of place companies in Syria in the country and regimes in Syria and other repressive regimes and being used um, for um, very negative purposes and uh, we're going to have um, um, Sarah come on in a minute um, Sarah McClure and she's with the Citizens Lab in University of Toronto and they've done a study um, one more, one of the more prominent uh, vendors in that area known as Blue Coat. And we'll bring Sarah back uh, on right after these messages. You're listening to webmasterradio.fm. This is Cyber Law and Business Report with Bennett Kelly. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use certifiedknowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. Get the link. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS, text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm, sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. WebmasterRadio.fm is the destination for education, entertainment, and engagement. 
Engage with our panel of on-air experts and peers by following us on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and LinkedIn, so you can reach us before and after every program. We also feature our exclusive real-time chat room, where we welcome all listeners to engage with our show hosts during every live show. You can listen to WebmasterRadio.fm on air or on demand from our website or through iTunes, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts. Interact and stay informed by following us on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for WebmasterRadio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. We have um, our second segment. It's a very interesting topic, and it's an important one, and it doesn't necessarily have an easy answer. But there is, as you know, going on right now, a number of regimes that see the Internet as a threat. And something that, that the lesson they took from um, the um, Arab Spring was that the Internet should be controlled. Not that um, the people, um, it's a way to uh, free people, but it needs to, it, it's a tool they shouldn't have. So we have with us um, Sarah McCune, who's with the University of Toronto, and um, she is part of their. Um, Citizens Lab, and it's a well-known lab that's done some interesting work, and they just completed a study on the Planet Blue Coat, and it focuses on one some technology firm in particular based in Silicon Valley, Blue Coat, and that has been at the center of some of the um, software used to um, censor the Internet and filter um, Internet messages. And so, um, Sarah, you're with us. Yes, hi, thank you for having me. And um, Sarah is joining us from New York, I am informed. And um, so I'm glad you could join us, and um, we, I appreciate you coming in. Um, so Sarah, how did you come get involved with Citizens Lab? Well, I came to Citizen Lab um, from the human rights nonprofit world. I was quite familiar with their work on um, issues of you know technological impact on human rights, uh, things like study of malware, how it's been used against civil society groups, um, because the Citizen Lab is an interdisciplinary laboratory, of course, based at Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, that really brings together the, the three components of technology, security, and human rights. And so I come from more of the human rights background, and uh, at Citizen Lab, I use that to inform a lot of the analysis of how technology is used. And... Um so in doing this study, um, why the focus on this one vendor? Well, we at Citizen Lab, we try to focus on a variety of vendors, a variety of products. Unfortunately, this is also an industry that's characterized by a significant lack of transparency. So the things that we've been able to find have, you know, really come from a lot of in-depth research, um, you know, network scans, other types of technical um, interrogation um, research methods. Um, and, you know, we're certainly not able to find the entire picture or explain the entire picture of how 
dual use, so to speak, technologies are affecting human rights around the world. But we have found significant evidence of Blue Coat products. Blue Coat is one of the main companies involved in the market for commercial filtering and traffic inspection products. And um, through our work, um, our technical interrogation, our network scans, we've been able to identify its products being used in many different countries on what appear to be um, public or um, you know, government-controlled networks, um, internet, internet connections. Uh, and so we've been developing that over time. We started looking at um, some of their products back in 2011 when uh, we discovered certain devices being used in Syria, which, of course, is a country subject to U.S. sanctions. And there was a, a major event in 2012, I recall, that the government of Pakistan actually openly put out a request for proposal that more or less said, um, let me see if I can find the exact language, that basically was to enable it to censor the Internet. Um, I believe the actual quote here, one second. Um, Pakistan's ISP and backbone providers expressed their inability to block millions of undesirable websites using current manual blocking systems, and as a result, a national URL filtering and blocking system is therefore required to be deployed at national IP backbone of the country. And right. um, it caused a, a, an international outcry in part due to a group known as the Global Network Initiative, which you know, Microsoft, Google, and Yahoo are members of. And it urged people to boycott um, and not, su su not submit a bid. And so in terms of who's in the space that we're talking about, um, companies that um, were put under pressure and, and ultimately decided not to submit bids were Sandvine, Cisco, Verizon, WebSense, McAfee, and um, and Bluecoat as well. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. none of them did. But apparently, um, that that was in the spotlight. And I guess what you're looking at is life after the spotlight. Right. And I think the Pakistan example was a really important. Um, you know, instance of civil society action around this issue, um, you know, civil society involving academia, um, NGOs, uh, collaborating with the private sector through the Global Network Initiative, a lot of different voices coming together to really act on this. But it's interesting that that action was prompted because of Pakistan's mi mistake, I guess you could call it, in making that call for proposals so public and so widely known. It came to the attention of, of these different groups and these different interests who wanted to mount a response. Um, in many cases, this is a much more um, reclusive uh, sector. Uh, you don't always get this kind of information about who's bidding for what, what companies are providing which technologies where, so it's something that a lot more research and uh, documentation needs to be done on. And, and and I agree with you, and I think that you know basically, um, you know, what Pakistan did is um, kind of akin to you know, where I grew up in Providence. There was a 
um, has a strong mafia history, in, and we were actually in a, the uh, a restaurant in the the capital of the mafia territory. And my, my Canadian wife, um, who's unfamiliar with this area, um, we were sitting in a very um, small restaurant with tables very close together, and she asked me loudly, um, "Are there any? Do you think there are any wise guys here?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and in essence, you know, Pakistan um, did a, 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 a similar loud whisper that um, more or less got them to made it uncomfortable for everyone. Mm-hmm. But, um, but and we do we do think that this is something that should be publicly discussed and come to light in a much more transparent manner. But the question is how to really motivate the different entities involved to do that. Now it it. it there has been the Pakistan the event triggered debate in the United States, and there's a senator from excuse me a senator God forbid um, there, there's a, a congressman from New Jersey um, who every year has introduced the you know, for a number of congresses now as and probably will this year um, introduced the Global Online Freedom Act, yes. which um, you know, tries to uh, regulate. Um, U.S. Internet companies in their dealings with repressive regimes. And there was a provision that would have addressed uh, that in the last version of uh, what's often known as GOFA. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that did trigger some debate there. Do you, and um, have there been any response? I know Congress is just getting in session. Has there been a response from Washington to your report? Uh, well, there hasn't been anything um, that, that we've seen come through, uh, either from you know, government specifically or from Blue Code itself. But we think there is a lot of general public interest uh, in this topic. And we think that's, um, you know, something that needs to be encouraged. It comes out after these sort of sorts of details and this type of evidence is released because it really presents in a very clear manner the fact that these activities are taking place supported by Western companies. And once you get that kind of um, information on the table, then momentum can start building around it. And we saw that uh, back in 2011, after the discussion of blue coat devices in Syria, there was actually a U.S. Department of Commerce investigation into whether they were aware that uh, their devices were shipped to the country and um, various other follow-up. Now, it seems that Bluecoat's response to this kind of scrutiny has been to um, go stealth, um, literally. They were once a public company. They've now since gone private. And uh, as far as I can tell, there has been no public response to the report. Not that we've seen. Um, uh, we've seen a lot of coverage in various for uh, different media outlets, but in terms of Blue Coat actually responding, we've only seen that they've uh, came back with no comment. Um, so we're still waiting on that, and uh, we'll we'll be following up on that. Now, just as the debate in the United States was was developing, um, you know, last year there was also some movement in the European Union, and actually trying to toughen the standards for using um, this type of software where um, the intent is to be able to use it for um, a repressive purpose. And um, can you tell us a little bit about what, what was happening in the European Union? Sure. Yeah, it was definitely a very promising initiative. The difficulty with this sector is that in many situations, these technologies do have legitimate uses. They can actually be used for um, purposes that 
result in benefits to society. So, for example, commercial filtering products, they can be used to limit um, employee access within a private company to sites that might hinder productivity, like, for example, controlling whether or not employees can access Facebook during the workday. Right. Um, traffic inspection products, like the package paper device we looked at um, in, in um, the Blue Coat report, uh, those can be used to control the amount of bandwidth allocated to certain applications that are running on a particular user system, and that can reduce costs associated with you know, the provision of that bandwidth online. So these things can have legitimate uses. The question is how to distinguish between the appropriate use and a use that is much more questionable, such as the deployment of these products at you know, the uh, national level for wide-scale network filtering and um, surveillance. So it's a very tricky issue when it comes to actually crafting the language that will be used to regulate these types of sales. Um, but the EU has taken some important steps in that regard. Um, they've actually incorporated in their export control framework reference to, uh, um, let me find the exact language. Uh, Let's see. Um, their initial resolution was to um, prohibit authorization of technologies used in certain designated countries if they were used in connection with the violation of human rights, democratic principles, or freedom of speech by using interception technologies and digital data transfer devices for monitoring mobile phones and text messages and targeted surveillance of Internet use. So since then, since that initial proposition, they've tried to expand it a little bit um, requiring authorization for any sale of dual-use technologies designated by European authorities as violative of human rights, democratic principles, or freedom of speech. And they've also called for, you know, a wider ban on that kind of technology and more multilateral cooperation around that control. Because it's not just you know Silicon Valley that's involved in this. I mean, I believe that the EU was responding to some sales by an Irish company, for example. Uh, I'm I'm not actually familiar with the the Irish example. Um, and then I believe there's some a German company that might be involved as well. But oh, are you referring to um, the Gamma Group that supplied the Finfisher? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so FinFisher spyware was um, provided by, it's actually, a, I believe, a UK-based corporation. They have operations in Germany as well. Um, it's, it's a technology that can be used to surreptitiously intercept um, communications of a user as well as um, provide remote access to a user's device. And so that's very concerning technology. It's one of the technologies that we would consider more along the lines of single use in that it doesn't really have um, a potentially um, beneficial um, purpose in, in that it's, it's used without a user's consent um, to violate their, their privacy. Yeah, and um, I actually was involved somewhat in the spyware debate here in the United States, and 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 in a um, meeting with people on the Hill about this. And you, know, 
I mean, there actually are some legitimate uses to some spyware technologies, such as, for example, and you are you are correct. It would, it would it would be for monitoring people without their consent or knowledge. But it is one way for parents to monitor their children, for example. And um, and so the question is is always and it always will be is do you regulate the technology or do you regulate the conduct? And you know, the technology is a little trickier, um, but the conduct may be more appropriate. And I, I think that's what the EU is trying to do, a blended approach. Right, right. And a blended approach definitely makes sense. Uh, in, when you consider how fast this sector is developing and the fact that technologies are, are changing constantly, I think it would be very difficult to approach this solely on the basis of the technical features or characteristics of a particular product. So you definitely do have to exa- examine that and use and end user and really, you know, question the purpose. And you, well, you saw that also here in the United States with the assault weapons ban. That you know, as soon as the ban was passed and it was based on a certain technical definition of what is an assault rifle, then all you had to do was then just work around the definition, and, and boom, right. you know, no pun intended. But you, know, you, you, you were you no longer were an assault weapon. And right. um, and so that that is the problem with measuring technology. You know, one, it's being measured by people who aren't um, technologists, and so um, their precision is is somewhat suspect to begin with. But the technology changes. The minute it's like taking a a snapshot of a moving train. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can um, slow it down um, so it's less blurry, but it's not going to be as clear. You know, it's, it's not going to be as accurate, and mm-hmm. um, and so. That is the challenge, and that's why I've always tended to tell people focus on the conduct. Yeah, yeah, and it definitely makes sense to really zero in on the purpose because typically the purpose for which these technologies deployed remains consistent. It's being used to monitor opposition, um, to uh, filter content that may um, provide information that a government does not want its people to see. So these are things that can be assessed and controlled for. So um, we only have a few minutes left. So what, what's your next step with this report or your, your next project? Mm-hmm. Well, we'd like to uh, continue to try to contribute to research on the use and deployment of these technologies. Uh, we think it's essential that there be further research as well as dialogue and that the combination of those two will result in concrete and informed action. Um, so we definitely want to continue to push towards that dialogue and to press companies to be more transparent, proactive, and responsible to really incorporate um, what's been captured in the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights about companies needing to respect and protect human rights, um, having an obligation themselves to to follow through on that. Things like human rights due diligence measures and risk assessments, um, those kinds of things are very important. So we'll continue doing our work to document the use and hope that it uh, contributes to the discussion. And what is the website if people want more information about CitizenLab? Sure, it's uh, citizenlab.org. Great. Well, I want to thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you, and please stay in touch and let us know how this develops. It is a very important issue. Um, everyone, Sarah McLuhan with Citizen Lab, University of Toronto, and um, it's been a pleasure. Um, we only have a few seconds left, but I want to do a few shout-outs. 
Um, the first two, Xavier Hollifield, the um, the former heavyweight champion boxer, who has actually stepped into the fight on cyberbullying, and particularly in in dealing with the um, the ongoing bullying of the late Amanda Todd. Um, he made an appearance in Canada recently, and so I want to give him a shout out for that. And then finally, um, while this was a very bleak day, uh, we do have the Super Bowl coming up, and today is the anniversary of the Washington Redskins winning their first Super Bowl. And for my friends in Washington, I know it's a very special day for you, and I was happy to be there for it. Um, it was very exciting. John Riggins, fourth and one from the 43, um, a memorable play, and he went all the way to the end zone, and the rest is history, as they say. So um, it was a very exciting time for a city that um, hadn't won in a long time. So may um, San Francisco or Baltimore, good luck to both of you. May you enjoy the thrill that we definitely had that day. But this is all for Cyberlong Business Report. I want to thank you. Um, for listening, and these are very important issues, and we're going to be following them as we go along throughout the year. Um, if you have any comments, feel free to let us know. We're happy to um, address them on air, and that's all we have. Um, I want to thank you again, um, and this is um, Bennett Kelly. You're with the Internet Law Center at the heart of Silicon Beach, and it may be um, the anniversary Sunday, Sunday Buddy Sunday, but uh, it's a happy sunny day here in Santa Monica. So happy day to all of you. Court is adjourned. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? 
Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.